Hold in Court with Mike Trevelyan and Dean Sheridan. Hi everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Holding Court with me, Dean Sheridan, and my barrister friend, Michael Trevelyan. This is the podcast where we discuss crimes, uh, law cases, court cases, and Mike will fill us in, hopefully, with some sort of relevant law-related knowledge from his career as a crime fighter. Uh, how are you, Mike? <laughs> Um, yes, I feel as though career and crime fighter should both be in inverted commas. Um, ha- well, as for how I am, um, had we not have voted to leave the European Union, I would now be referring to myself as the sick man of Europe. As it is, I'm just a sick man. I have a cold. I've had it since kind of Wednesday. It is tiresome in the extreme. Uh, I am also tired as a consequence of being unwell. So this is going to be one of those podcasts where I might just die midway through and Dean will just have to carry it. I like how in just as many weeks we've been talking about the demise of Michael Trevelyan in about two or three different episodes (laughs) for relatively different reasons each time. Yeah, yeah, this could be the season finale where I actually shuffle off this mortal coil. We'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> and I'm like, well, just make sure that uh, if you're worried about getting any diseases from Mike, just uh, put little masks over your ears while you listen to this podcast, just exactly. in case you know, it gets infected. Yes. Do also make sure to rub uh, sanitizing gel on your ears after you've listened to the podcast. I see. Do you reckon that would have any effect, any issues with your ears? It wouldn't, would it? No, it'd probably be good, wouldn't it? I'd have thought. I would say so. Probably clean them. Don't, don't go too but... deep. I'm, I'm thinking like going right deep into the ear. Oh, that's never a good idea. That's never a in good any idea. context. Yeah, never okay. ever do that. Yeah, don't stick things in your ears. Um, and you can take that as a holding court seal of approval. Uh, only go so far into your ear hole. If you're touching eardrum, you've gone too far. Yes, absolutely. Um, how are you, Dean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, apart from uh, obviously working towards my medical degree, I'm doing yep. uh, all right. Yeah, it's been a busy weekend. I've had a, a stag do and we sang last night at a gig. And uh, it's been uh, quite fun and it's gone by really fast. This is bank holiday in England for anyone who's ab- abroad. I don't know whether they have a similar thing in America. I know they have public holidays, but a bank holiday is just a couple of days a year where the bank's shut and so does everywhere else. And then you just get to uh, you just get to have the day off for some reason. I'm not even hundred percent sure why they exist. No, I'm not hundred percent sure either. And I heard that there was a bank holiday. What what's now a bank holiday? I don't think it's this August one, although it may be. That used to be International Workers' Day, a bit of a socialist thing, and people were given the the day off so that they could you know go to the go on holiday for the weekend or something like that or take a bit of time with the family and um, so i don't know if that's the origin of all bank holidays or if it is literally just the bank said one day we're not going to go to work and then back in the day when banking was kind of necessary every day for our businesses to work it just didn't make sense for anything to open but you would have thought even if that were the case that in the last 20 years businesses would have gone actually there's really no reason why we have to be closed anymore why aren't we just open on bank holidays well, some businesses do open on bank holidays, but I, I'm just guessing that um, it would be more pain than it's worth <clears throat> to turn around and try and tell people that they're not allowed bank holidays when you grow up used to it. You're just going to kick off in the end, aren't you? You're going to be like, what? And if you went and they were like, no bank holidays, or or people who do work bank holidays, they tend to get paid double time or triple time. 
So it's almost mm, just like you true. just work it. But then again, I do know some people that do work it. But then again, their work shift patterns tend to compensate that. Yes, and I know people who flip it down and then reverse it. So <laughs> <laughs> between us, we have the beginning of a song. Wow, there we go. <clears throat> so uh, <laughs> just uh, there you just got a little inkling into uh, before he was a barrister, his hip-hop roots, his dance troupe. I'm, I'm they, called me, they, they called me Little Biscuit. Little Biscuit. And uh, it was great. I just used to come on stage, drink some tea, eat some biscuits, and then spit some rhymes. Yeah, and then there was your sickly little friend, Digestive, who just used to stand in the <laughs> Little Biscuit and Digestive. Yeah, there was also Rich Tea, but all the money went to his head. Yeah, I almost joined as Hobnob, but decided to... Um, yes, um, but now I'm a lawyer, and um, <laughs> there's much less singing involved, but um, there's still an element of performance. So there's no chance you could ever give your closing argument in, in like the form of a rap? I, I doubt it. I think it'd be quite funny to do it in like rhyming couplets or something. I think you could probably try that. But I suspect a rap may be slightly uh, unorthodox. I imagine that. You say they record it written down, just like all these all these bars that you just spit in the middle of court. <laughs> and, 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 and the jury... So it wouldn't look as good on the transcript. The jury's like, wow, the guy was obviously the murderer, but just due to that rap, I just had to let him go. Absolutely. You'd be like, well, you know... I mean, on the one hand, we're here to try an arsonist. On the other hand, that lawyer was on fire. <laughs> Not guilty. I will start with our first case, moving on from arson attempt two, right? So this is this is more something that has been used as a defense. Well, it's not so much a, a defense as, as a trick to try and get you out of something. So There's an incredibly uh, fine line between those two things, as it turns out. Well, well it was used legally and allowed a defendant to drop their case. So this is called the small penis rule. Have you heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like I'm accusing you of a small penis. <laughs> um, I'm delighted to say that I have never heard of this in my life in any context, professional, <laughs> medical, or social. Yeah, I should have thought about that before I started talking how that sounds. Is that a small penis, you heard of it? Yeah. Um, no, yeah. So the small penis rule, I think this was on QI and on one of the podcasts I listened to, I was like, that's crazy. So basically it was, uh, and I'll get the sort of thing. So it was, um, it was a strategy used by authors to evade libel lawsuits. Uh, and I believe it was, um, it was referenced in 2006 dispute between Michael Crowley and Michael Crichton, you know, who, who wrote um, Jurassic Park and Jurassic Park 2, Electric Boogaloo. What's the, what's the second one called? <laughs> and uh, then became the android in Red Wolf. <laughs> yes, that's it. Well, I, I've heard it pronounced as Crichton, even though it's like Crichton, isn't it? C-R-I-C-H-T-O-M. Yeah. yeah, I've seen that as well, but I'm assuming he knows how to pronounce his own name. Okay. But I'm so, with you on this. So let's just say the Jurassic Park author. So this guy, Michael Crowley, uh, alleged that after he wrote an unflattering view of one of Jurassic Park author's novels, State of Fear, he then, in his next book, created a character called Mick Crowley, right? And Mick Crowley mm -hmm. was a child rapist, right? And he, he described as being a Washington-based journalist. And he wanted to sue him for it, saying that he took everything about me and put it in into his book, and therefore he wanted to get him into trouble. But then he, he also mentioned in it that this Mick Crowley of the book had a tiny penis. So in order for him to to sue him and be successful, he would have to accept that accept that all the descriptive 
things such as you know were, were sort of based on him so for instance like as, as in from a physical standpoint obviously he's gonna turn around and goes well, and i'm a child rapist um that wasn't gonna happen anytime soon but i mean like to say like he's this journalist and say that and if he specifically says he has a small penis he basically had to accept and say well i've got a small penis and most people will then drop the any case because it would mean admitting to having a small penis so if someone does something like that with a character even though the character is like 95 percent you could say he's basically done me they would then have to go forward and basically say that they have a small penis in order to win so it really depends how much you really want to do that and most people would just drop the case and this is the first time it was used and referenced so this is a terrible idea (laughs) and i'll tell you for why (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because the it, it's perfectly possible to uh, defame somebody in, in multiple ways. So if you have a if you create a character based on a real life person who has two bad attributes, uh, it's perfectly possible for the person to say, "Well, neither of those things are true. Uh, both of them are defamatory, and uh, therefore I'm still going to sue you." without having to make any implied admission that one of the two things has to be true. So from a practical point of view, we talked a few times before actually about this, and I think this is interesting, the difference between the practicality of whether or not a case is worth taking to court, various reasons as to why somebody might settle a case or whatever that you know they may, they may be, uh, want to avoid taking it to court, as opposed to the... Uh, strengths or weaknesses in principle of that case if it got in front of the judge so i can certainly see if somebody is feeling daring that they might think that i'm going to use this small penis idea to discourage somebody from engaging me in uh, allegations of defamation Um, because as you say it kind of muddies the waters a little bit and people might kind of get adverse publicity or whatever and it might become unclear as to um, what this person is admitting to and what this person isn't admitting to. (laughs) But from a a strictly legal point of view, um, it's a terrible idea because the person who is being defamed uh, could say both of these allegations are untrue, both of them are libelous, and I want damages for both. And indeed, actually, the small penis thing is in a sense potentially more legally dangerous for the defendant than the allegation of being a child rapist because an allegation of being a child rapist is something which is so extreme that it's possible to argue well nobody would believe that and therefore there's no damages but alleging that somebody has a small penis yeah that's perfectly believable somebody might very well believe that so actually from the point of view of what's the uh, allegation that has the biggest prospect of success, it actually might be the throwaway line that somebody has a tiny penis might actually leave the defendant in more legal hot water than the more extreme allegation that the claimant is a child rapist. So terrible idea, in short. Oh, I, th- I think it is a terrible idea because it's not bulletproof. It's just that it, it stands because it's just crazy to know that some people would not go forward with the case based on the fact that they would have to say that the character it's written about with the tiny penis is about them. Whether they turn around and they obviously they would go, well, but that's a lie. It's just one of those things, isn't it? They're like, oh, he was based on, on this person. And you could turn around and say it's a lie all you want, but then people are always going to assume that this character of a tiny penis was based on you. And then it, it's, it's an ego thing, isn't it? So it's testing 
someone's ego. So like you say, he, he could go ahead with it. It's not like it's not an actual legal defense in its way, but it's just, <laughs> but it is it is something that people don't want to accept. So this is just a little quote that someone's put for a fictional portrait to be actionable, it must be so accurate that a reader of the book would have no problem linking the two, said Mr. Friedman. I think he's one of the lawyers. Thus, he continued, libel lawyers have what is known as the small penis rule. One way authors can protect themselves from libel suits is to say that a character has a small penis, Mr. Friedman said. Now no male is going to come forward and say, that character with a very small penis, that's me. So he, he might have already said this, but I think what he's saying is it's um it almost... It's not really a rule probably once it gets to court, obviously, but then when they do it, when they create this character in the book and you read it before you even think about taking something to court and see that he's written about a character with a small penis, then people might just stay dumb and not take it to court for the sheer fact that then they would have to explain that this character is me, but I don't have a tiny penis, right when they could just let it go and hope that no one links the two people together in the first place. Yes, exactly. I mean, sometimes it's better to let sleeping dogs lie, isn't it? Rather than uh, rush to litigation and actually add more fuel to the uh, defamatory fire. Um, but one of, one of my favourite um, sort of Victorian expressions is that you cannot take the plums and leave the duff, uh, which is to say that, you know, you can't take the best bits of something and leave the rest. And that may be a sort of inverse version of what this author was thinking. Well, you know, he can't take the allegation I've made that he's a child rapist without also taking the allegation that he has a small penis. Um, but unfortunately, in this particular context, uh, the, the claimant absolutely could take the plums and leave the duff and say that uh, none of these things are true. It's bad that you used that saying, and it sounds like it could so easily be linked to some sort of penis pun that you... Uh... <laughs> What was it take the plums and leave the duff? Yes, yes. So you'll be familiar with the pudding, a plum duff. Uh, no, actually, um, oh, no. I haven't had a plum duff yet. I think but... it's like a suet pudding. Let's have a look. But like with plums. Um, sounds plum it, it, it does sound Victorian. It sounds very Victorian yeah. because it sounds fucking horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it it is very much a sort of if you imagine like a suet pie, but it's got plums in the middle. Um, I've never actually had one. I've just sort of heard the expression, but, um, but yeah, you can get a, a 19th century, apparently goes well with custard sauce. So there you go. What was I saying? I completely <laughs> you took about yes. the plums and the duff and yes. Uh, yes. It, it, the, the, the sort of the more common version of that saying is, um, you, you've got to separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. Okay. I've heard that one. Yeah. 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 Um, but there we go. So in the context of this, you absolutely can take the plums and leave the duff. And, uh, yeah, it's a very dangerous strategy. But I can see the logic in it from the point of view of just wanting to dissuade someone from adding publicity by taking legal action where perhaps they'd be better off just being quiet and letting it blow over. Yeah, it's, it's a way of saying, I want to take the piss out of you in a book by creating the characters very similar to you, but I'm going to give them a few attributes that it would be embarrassing for you to step forward in the first place and even try to admit that that person is based on you. Yes, uh, even, th so. even though if someone did have the bollocks to do that, there you go, see, I'm just going to keep it very penis punny. Then they would uh, be able to probably win if they did decide to go through with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it would, it would, yeah, it would not be a good legal strategy, but I can see the attraction, practically speaking. 
Okay, well, that was just a, a yeah, a small little rule or something that was used to dissuade, and then it came into uh, a court case, and I believe that he then dropped the court case afterwards, which is a bit weird since he's already started and brought light to it. But there you go, and that's the uh, small penis rule, which is not been given the court of, uh, holding court approval by Mike to be used. Uh, you could still find yourself in trouble, and these days, not many people have too much shame, so uh, <laughs> it might. <laughs> not work quite as well as it used to. So that's a good point. That's a good point. Our second case is based on the film The Hangover Part Two, or is it around that. Have you heard of the Hangover film franchise? I I have heard of the Hangover film franchise. I watched Hangover One and thought it was very good. I've got a feeling I watched Hangover Part Two, but I think I myself was suffering from a fairly chronic hangover, and so I don't really remember it. But didn't it involve a monkey? Yeah, they went to Thailand. It was pretty much, if you'd seen Hangover Part 1, the original, imagine watching that movie again, but in a, like a parallel universe. So although it takes back, you know, the jokes are different than that, but it generally works along the same lines. And then Hangover Part 3 is pretty shit. As, uh, oh, I'm, I'm not I've even sure not there was a hangover it. involved in it. Oh, that's weird. I mean, yeah. you would have thought that would be kind of the, the key part, wouldn't it? I mean, can you imagine like the birds? With no, with no birds in it, yeah. Well, I think I, I just think they'd push that too far. You can do that again. You can, you, can, a, you know, fool me once, fool me twice. You know, <laughs> the third time is just it's just an issue. So then they have to do something else. But then technically, it's not the hangover anymore. I mean, fair play that they tried something different, but it turns out that the winning combination was the fact that they got pissed up and woke up or drugged or whatever, and then woke up and realised lots of crazy shit had happened the night before, and then they had to retract their step. Yeah, I mean, it's a good concept. I did enjoy the first film. Absolutely. So in this film, in the second one, Ed Helms, uh, I don't know if you know, I don't know what the name of his character was. He was the one with the glasses, let's just say. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He wakes up the next day and he has a tattoo on his face in the second one, and he's got the Mike Tyson tattoo. Oh, the sort of... Um, yeah, I know the one, Randy Eye and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it turns out that the tattooist, the artist who, who did that for Mike Tyson, decided to sue the film. So it's, his name is S. Victor Whitmill. is claiming copyright over its design and has filed a suit against Warner Brothers Entertainment. Suit asks Warner Brothers to stop using the tattoo in its posters or in the movie because the tattoo features prominently in the Hangover Part 2 movie poster and in the movie because he's got it on his face the entire time. <laughs> um, and it, that would effectively stop the release, uh, the film being released. So he's saying it's copyright infringement, it's his artwork. He made it specifically for Mike Tyson. One of their issues was, well, no one had an issue with Mike Tyson appearing with it on his face in the first film, so which actually has Mike Tyson in. And so there was a lot of issues about it being graphic art and throwing doubt on fair use. Um, so basically they ended up sort of settling. I don't think they went to court. They paid them lots of money because the idea that if any issue came from it, they would be in a lot of trouble. They would probably cost them even more. They would have to change the artwork, delay the film, and probably have to do some sort of post-editing removal of the tattoo from his face in all of the scenes. And we all know how that kind of thing works out. If anyone's seen the Justice League movie that came out with... uh, 
Superman's floating lip that was meant to replace uh, Henry Cavill's mustache, you would have ended up with uh, this horrific dodgy eye, very likely. And this was, well, a good few years before uh, that, probably about a good seven years before that. So, yeah, he, he went to sue him, and basically they settled with him. And then that brings up the issue of, well, what are copywriting tattoos? So, for instance, I've got the Les Mis image as a tattoo on my arm. I know lots of people that get tattoos of things that they love, characters or, or things, artwork that they like, or, you know, maybe like cartoon characters, anime characters, Pokemon, I don't know, things like that nature, uh, video game characters. So where would that stand if that was, if you know, if you say you became famous or you were some reality TV star, you wandered onto a place and you had a, a, a a tattoo of i don't know pikachu on your arm or something like that and then people could start suing you because you're you you basically got their character or their artwork on your arm yeah it's an interesting thing this because you've got two slightly different arguments running together because i'm assuming that the mike tyson tattoo which i i do remember i know what it looks like I'm assuming that that is the tattoo artist's original art, i.e. he hasn't copied that from somewhere else. No. He may well have been inspired by, you know, traditional Maori art or whatever it might be. But um, So that's one thing. Then you have the second category that you raised where somebody gets a tattoo of, say, Pikachu. And, of course, that isn't the tattoo artist's original art. That's a copy of something which belongs to... Who owns Pokemon? Is it Nintendo? I think it's Nintendo. Yeah. I, well, I know so, everything that they do video game-wise. And it was originally a video game, so yeah, Nintendo. Yeah, yeah. So in a sense, tattoo artists would need to be a little bit careful because I imagine that most tattoos that people have are of characters and things you know like say Les Mis and, and whatever characters from uh, cartoons and things like that rather than necessarily original artwork and what you wouldn't want to do as a tattoo artist is have one of your tattooing colleagues open up a whole can of worms about whether tattoo artists are breaching copyrights by charging money to have say Nintendo's images tattooed onto their customers mm-hmm. that would potentially be disastrous for the uh industry the in the specific context you raised of it being the ultimate customer who has the tattoo of say pikachu would they then be in a situation where they might get sued my initial thought is no probably not because the tattoo that they have is not uh generating any profit it's it's not commoditized um and it's on that basis that you can have the tattoo done um If you were to become somebody a bit like Mike Tyson, who is famous now, probably um, more for having a tattoo on his face, then potentially you could see an argument of saying, well, actually, um, that tattoo is profit generating because it's his brand. It's, It's part of his celebrity image. And therefore, there is a copyright infringement. It's not a kind of fair use thing. But so there are two different circumstances there, one where it's the tattoo artist's tattoo and they have the copyright, and one where the copyright is owned by a, uh, another company and it's then copied onto a customer's arm. Um, going back to the Mike Tyson 
situation. I think, again, you've got two slightly different situations because, as you say, there's no difficulty with Mike Tyson walking around with his tattoo on his face. But well, shouldn't he have the right, though, to... So he was in the first film, so he's obviously, I would say, a fan of, of the sort of series, and then I'm guessing this whole tattoo on the face in the, in the second film is basically a bit of a throwback to the, the cameo in the first film and for him having Mike Tyson's tattoo. So Mike Tyson, I don't believe, would have much issue with it, or any issue, and technically he paid to have the artwork done. It feels like Mike Tyson is renting this guy's artwork on his face. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I feel as though that's probably a fair characterization, isn't it? It's probably fine for the... Because the artist has consented to his work being on Mike Tyson's face. That's the basis on which it's been tattooed there. But if you were to... I mean, say, for example, to take a slightly different example, but similar, I buy a piece of art from someone and I hang it in my house with their knowledge and consent. That's one thing. But if I then sell that piece of art to someone else and effectively claim it as my own, um, the original artist may say, well, hold on, that's, that's not your piece of art. You bought the art, but the actual image is mine. And so you can't just start producing loads of, of reproductions of this picture and set up, you know, Trevelyan Painting Limited and um, just start reproducing my image. So I can see that being the, the, the distinction because Mike Tyson, assuming that he is consenting to all of this, which I think is a fair assumption, um, he is allowing the Hangover films to generate money by using art and his own kind of brand, but using art which belongs to someone else um, without that artist's consent. But what about, let's say, you take an animated version let's say something like Family Guy, and they do one of their throwaways, and in their throwaways they do like a sort of satire of Mike Tyson, and he's in it. But then they draw Mike Tyson as they do in in The Simpsons or like, say, Family Guy or something like that, where they have like these sort of animated versions of celebrities, South Park, all that kind of thing. Then, And then they would, to make it look like Mike Tyson, they would put that tattoo on. Does that count? Or is it because the animated version is Mike Tyson with that tattoo? So I think what you're getting into there is the is, is fair use, which we've already said. And fair use, I think, covers a wide range of different types of use. So um, you're allowed to reproduce a copyrighted work if you are doing so under the umbrella of fair use. And things that are encompassed by fair use are things like uh, news reporting, scholarship, research, also parody. And parody is a humorous form of social commentary uh, in which one work imitates another. So I think in the context of something like Family Guy, they would probably say this is a parody fair use thing because we're doing a social commentary through our cartoon. See, okay, yeah, that makes sense to me. That's my guess. Because that because I, I thought about this because of course specifically in the context of Family Guy they did a whole thing on Star Wars, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did all the movies sort of ro- rotoscope some some of it, yeah. Yeah. 
And I, I'd, I'd often thought kind of, well, how can they possibly do that? Because they're clearly just ripping off Star Wars. Um, but I'm, I'm assuming that they would do so under the umbrella of, of parody fair use. And yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I didn't know if they just had an agreement with what well, would would have been Lucas Films at the time, wouldn't it? But then again, yeah. it's it's so different enough that you could because they've already done so many throwaways and, and scenes where they parodied bits from Star Wars anyway. So uh, I guess it's just a, a much longer version than that. I just think you run a bit more risk that way, don't you? When you're literally doing the movie bit for bit, but like a forty five minute version of it rather than individual throwaway scenes. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think actually, just in the back of my mind, I think that's the basis on which spitting image is allowed to happen. Um, because obviously spitting image, for those who don't know, it, it was reproduced fairly recently. But back in the sort of 70s and 80s, or possibly 80s and 90s, it was a, a sort of political satire uh, involving puppets of famous people. And I think that was allowed to uh, portray celebrities um, as these sort of ridiculous caricature puppets on the basis that it was a parody and uh, therefore it was fair use yeah but i mean that you're, you're right to say that the other way of doing it is is to have an agreement with the copyright holder um but particularly in the context of something like star wars you would expect that that would require lots and lots of money to change yeah hands. yes i imagine it would especially at that time I don't remember. Yeah, mm. it wouldn't have been Lucasfilm. When did Disney? I don't think we went when Disney got the rights, but it, I think that was after they did all those specials. I think Disney got the rights not long before they created the uh, Force Awakens, and now the seven yeah, different right. spin-offs that uh, seem to be coming out. As I look through the sort of article on this, they talk about the Maori design in general mm. and what it means. So, from a foreign law specialist uh, in New Zealand. They said that the uh, traditional art of Maori tattoo is like a great significance to their culture. And tattooing is considered uh, a sacred art. So the design symbolize a person's like and- ancestry accomplishments and connections to their tribe. Uh, therefore, it's, it's a mark of someone, a person's identity. So they said the use of designs by non-Maori is a particular sensitive issue. So someone then in a quote says, it's astounding that a pakeha, I don't know if that's pronounced correctly, but in brackets, that means non-Maori tattooist who inscribes an African-American's flesh with what he considers to be a Maori design has the gall to claim that design as his intellectual property. The tattooist has never consulted with Maori, has never had experience of Maori, and originally and obviously stole the design that he put on Tyson. The tattooist has an incredible arrogance to assume he has the intellectual right to claim the design from of an indigenous culture and that is not his so there you go there's also that side of things opening up a can of worms when you start looking into this kind of thing yeah absolutely i mean you've got the kind of uh social issue of of what i suppose we would nowadays call cultural appropriation um the legal difficulty with asserting a sort of copyright over something like uh, an indigenous design i suppose would be to identify who holds the copyright and to ensure that it hasn't become part of the public domain. Um, Because if it's something that's a sort of traditional use and and goes back centuries, um, then I would imagine that the original copyright holders probably long since died. And I would also say that, is it technically, could you technically even call it Maori? I mean, is that not just called that way because that's where you, who would, who would 
give you the tattoo and what it meant. If someone just does a design that looks that way, you know, like you see a lot of people, they go out and they've got like big like Maori tattoos down their, their arms and things, but they've probably got it done in town by some like young tattoo artist. Like it is real Maori different to just doing designs of a certain look. Well, that's right. And I suppose that's more of the cultural issue, isn't it? As to whether somebody who is doing their own designs that are inspired by traditional Maori art should at the very least sort of credit that and recognise that source of inspiration. Uh, And if they are doing sort of derivative work, then um, perhaps they should say so. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there's an interesting question there. I mean, yeah, I think if somebody's sitting in, you know, a tattoo shop in Coventry, is creating a a piece of work that's not a direct copy of a Maori piece of art, but is inspired by it. I think it is a bit of a stretch to say that that chap is a Maori tattoo artist. Yeah, and so I see that point. Or, yeah, or that I, it's or that it's a Maori tattoo because it's just I yeah. think that an idea of a Maori tattoo is is you get it done by a Maori tattoo artist and it's it's a proper design, whereas it's not it's like a Cornish pasty, you know. <laughs> Everyone gets a pasty. You can't call it a Cornish pasty unless it's from Cornwall. That's a Cornish pasty. Otherwise, you've just got a pasty. So this is just a regular pasty of tattoos. But if you want a Maori pasty tattoo, then you need to go to New Zealand or have someone who uh, of that heritage somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I I think um, the United Nations, or it might be the European Union, um, specifically designate certain things as being sort of protected. And I see this particularly in the context of food and drink. As you say, Cornish pasties, um, French champagne, uh, Melton Mowbray port pies. Uh, I haven't yet had my dinner. That's why these are in my <laughs> mind. Um, certain things do have a, a specific definition. And if you don't meet that definition, then you can't call it that. So, you know, there might be an argument to be saying, well, perhaps we should widen the scope of these sort of definitional uh, issues and say, you know, a Maori tattoo has the following definition. And if you do not uh, conform with that definition, if you're not you know, of Maori descent when you're doing the tattooing um, and it doesn't you know, look like one of these particular pieces of art or, or whatever, um, then you can't call it a Maori tattoo. It has to be something else. There we go. So we, we've uh, covered the hangover, some guy suing, and I think he got settled outside of court. I think he made some money off it because I think it just came down to the cost and worth. It was probably easier to pay him off a certain amount for the use of his artwork than it would have been to have to go to court, go through all that issues, delay the release of the film, and possibly if they thought they could have lost it. I'm not sure if they could have, but if they thought they could, um, then the ability to have to like digitally remove it from the actor's face when he probably would have just been happy with, like I don't know, half a mil or something like that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Again, it's a good example of... Uh the need for pragmatism in litigation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So there you go. I'm going to make notes of every piece of artwork I doodle. And uh, hopefully one day my big cash check will come in once I see it used. I'll be like, I drew that on a on a piece of tissue at TGI Fridays seven years ago. And now I've just seen it in uh, the new Game of Thrones spinoff. And then I'll make money exactly. off of it. Doodle exactly. some boats and one day your ship may come in. Ooh. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> okay we'll come on to our final section now this is i call bullshit 
I Call Bullshit is the part of the show where I present Mike with a case, uh, usually a crime or something that can be shared on the internet easily, usually in meme form or or in a nice little neat article. And it gets shared quite a lot and people end up believing it. So I ask Mike, do you believe it or do you not? And uh, sometimes they're just really crazy cases that turn out to be true. Sometimes they're just crazy cases that get shared around a lot and they're just completely false and uh, cause more trouble than they're worth. So we call it, this is our little bit to the world. It's our sort of finding the fake news from the real news uh, and seeing if maybe people have heard these cases before. So stop right there, Dean. I am turning these tables. Get ready. Oh, okay. All right. So yeah. uh, <laughs> <left> me like, <laughs> it's like this like real silence. That, I was like, uh. that was an unfortunate moment for a loss of connection. Right. I have had a message from one of our regular uh, fans of the show and one of my regular correspondents about the show. Okay. And she, Dean, is taking you to task. So I am going to relay her complaint. Okay. And you are going to respond okay. because she she is she is unhappy to say the least. Oh oh god! All right then, get ready. Okay. So I received the following missive. She says, "I've fallen a bit behind on my podcast consumption, so have only just caught up with episode number twenty six. Now I interpose there to say I think that was an episode where we were talking a lot about transgenderism in prisons." Okay, yeah, that's Chris Chan, the Chris Chan uh, Lolka. She goes on, I feel compelled to question an assumption made by Dean that men who may be a bitch in a male prison could run a block in a female prison. (laughs) God, yeah. I assume because us women would naturally defer to said man because he was a man and we are weaker and inferior (laughs) and will therefore hand him the keys of the castle purely on the basis of his being a man. At least that's how I interpreted his comment, to which I call bullshit, she says. So, yeah. what say you, Dean? You really have put me on the spot there, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that probably was a bit of a, a real overgeneralisation. It's probably because all I imagine when I think of uh, sort of prisoners is like they're, they're all like, like it's all movie based because I hope never to go there are all like these like massively hench over the top. And then my only sort of access when I think of women prisons is like orange is the new black. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it might be is an over assumption and maybe it is part of my sort of, uh, sometimes occasional caveman brain as much as I, try my best with this podcast and with things to expand my mind i will always accidentally say very generic shit like that so no i take it if you are a bitch in a male prison then when you go to a female prison you could easily still be a bitch to a a female prisoner you could have like a a ronda rousey-esque uh women in there or some tough women i mean i've seen some tough women uptown that i wouldn't want to fuck with so yeah and then you've also got gang mentality so even if it was a big bloke if there's a you know 10 women all shivved up then um it doesn't really matter too much does it so yes that was a bit of an assumption i was trying to be like let's uh look after people in prison and not send blokes in in case, you know, they, they sort of want to take over there because they're having a bad time in a male prison. 
but uh, that could just be they could just make a terrible mistake and then they think they're going to have an easy ride turn up and get shanked on their first day by Barbara who's in there for murdering seven of her ex-lovers so i in in amongst that explanation which i think is fair um now this may be deliberate i didn't hear the word sorry to our correspondent <laughs> yes okay i apologize for over generalizing there um good we are all a work in progress and um as much as i have cast this as dean being taken to task it is fair to say um, that i didn't challenge his assumption either so i am every bit as uh, involved in the generalization as he was so just as dean has apologized i too will apologize and um, here on this podcast we are trying to improve and get better and i like to think that through these sorts of angry missives um, we have managed to do that. So thank you very much to our correspondent. Well, th- I think they will also like then our I Call Bullshit this week. It is, um, I would say, another one That's to okay. show the power of women over asshole men, which is man loses genitals whilst assaulting woman thanks to anti-rape device. Ooh. So what do you think? Do you think that's true or false? Well, I don't know a lot about anti-rape devices, but my limited understanding is that they're basically like a big alarm thing. So you sort of like press a button or you kind of pull a tab or whatever, and they just make a massive noise. Now, it's not entirely clear to me, therefore, how that would cause somebody to lose their genitals. So unless it's one of those things where it sort of extends it'd have to extend quite away wouldn't it to make somebody i i think that's bullshit i just don't see how it can happen one of those things that extends you know like a like a like a police baton you sort of bang it and it extends or like the um mobile phone aerial in that episode of only fools and horses that goes up does nose <laughs> all right um, well imagine selling that as anti-rape device that'd be quite effective wouldn't it? well yeah that, that basically a weapon would yes. be a, would be effective as an anti-rape yes. device. That's a fair point. It is a weapon. Yes. So yeah. So is you saying false? I'm I'm saying it's false because I simply don't see how it can cause the loss of genitalia. Okay, it is a false story, but uh, ah! it's it's some sort of device uh, that's also based on something real, which is what's. I wouldn't say cool about it, because given the context of what the whole fucking thing is for, I'll even show you a picture of the device later that's uh, based on a, a real one. But basically, uh, it was in June 2016, this story was published by News 4 Katie Alley uh, about a rapist getting his penis cut off. It started to appear on social media and in the inbox of this site. It had all the elements, potentially viral story, dealing as it did with instant, satisfying a permanent commitment for violently criminal behaviour. So... A New York woman is thanking the makers of an anti-rape device, saying that it saved her from being raped and brutally assaulted. Michelle Kingston, see, like I say, this is when you know it's good fake stories because they have names and things, says she was walking home from work in the afternoon on Sunday when a man jumped out of a side alley and grabbed her. She said he couldn't scream, it happened so quick, he put his hand over her mouth and threatened her with a knife. I stayed calm and compliant knowing he was about to get the karma that he deserved. Karma that Kingston describes is a device that was purchased for her by her grandfather. Uh, 
That's a bit of an odd one. But uh, her grandfather was like, I wanted my granddaughter to be safe, so I purchased this anti-rape device for her, said Mitchell Kingston, the grandfather. So she's Michelle and he's Mitchell. They haven't really put a lot of thought into the difference between names there. She fussed about it, but finally gave in. She's gorgeous and only 18, and I don't want her to be taken advantage of or assaulted. She walks to and from work every day in the city, and rapes happen multiple times per day. Uh, That punk got what he deserved. Where do they live? Uh, according to Kingston, the minute he penetrated his victim, the device sliced his genitals with six razors in one clean sweep. Then the device slices down one more time on its way out. The perpetrator fell to the ground screaming in a- agony, which gave Kingston the time to run and call the police on her cell phone. The man, 38-year-old Ronald Steadway... I imagine the time to go and have a three-course meal. <laughs> ...was transported to a nearby hospital where his penis had to be surgically removed. So the site it came from, News for KTLA, however, publishes only hoax and satire news, despite posing as a legitimate Los Angeles area news outlet. Uh, this story contains no truth. Among articles the pages published is another revenge story about a woman cut- cutting off her rapist genitals and forcing him to eat them, and that Dasani brand bottled water was being recalled because it harboured a clear parasite. So that's sort of the stuff that was being brought out by them. But underneath it says the photographs of the anti-rape device is real in a sense. They show the prototype for a device called uh, Rape X and then later Rape Axe, which makes more sense, I guess. Uh, That is supposed to shred the rapist's penis on entry, thereby preventing sexual assault or at least curtailing rapes in the progress. So, yeah. So uh, I'll show you an image of, of the device that was shown. Uh, but then like, part of me is like, I can kind of see why it hasn't taken off. Because, <laughs> well, it's in, I don't mean like, not not from obviously uh, a point of view of like, you, you know, if you're a rapist, you don't have your knob cut off. But, well, well, I think so. But at the same time, it's a bit like uh, you would then, as a woman, have to walk around with this contraption. And because it's all the time, pretty much every time you went somewhere that you felt a little bit unsafe, which could be quite a few times, it wouldn't be great for that for that chance. But then again, you'd want it if you could. So um, I'll share my screen. Yeah, I mean, before the image comes up, I'm immediately I'm very much with you that it may not be something that women want to carry around um, because I'm put in mind of, you know, the stories of people who have a good God. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. How does that even? I don't right. know, so I don't know I'm... how it works. I'm guessing the razors are in. So, it, yeah, yeah. Go on, explain it. Explain it. What you're right. seeing. So, dear, dear, dear listener, if you were lucky enough to have grandparents when you were growing up, they undoubtedly had a mantelpiece in their front room. Picture the mantelpiece. On the mantelpiece would have been a carriage clock, one of those little clocks that has like a glass dome over the top of it imagine that somebody has taken that glass dome removed the clock and then stuck on all around the edge of this glass dome a series of what i assume are sort of quick release razor blades and that's basically what i'm looking at i'm looking at just a terrifying condom cum dome cum octopus jellyfish thing um with the capacity to just shred penises and i for one 
can immediately see why this is not taken off because it terrifies me just by looking at it. Yeah, but I don't think it hasn't taken off because they're scared of what might happen to the rapist or to blokes who see it. Yeah, I think it's more that it doesn't look like anything that anyone wants to have to put inside themselves in the case that, you know, something could happen. Well, that's right, because think of the people who, you know, you always hear stories of people who carry a gun and shoot themselves in the foot. And the analogy is just too horrible to think of. Are you, th- are you thinking of, like, what if they're out one night and then they decide to have consensual sex, but forget that it's there? I mean, well, no, could, could you forget that of, that's there? Well, I don't think you could. I, I don't think I'd ever forget. But I, I'm thinking more. What if it sort of goes off accidentally? I mean, is there the potential for sort of? I, I don't like think it goes from the looks of it. I don't think it goes spreading. off accidentally. I think it looks like it's like. You you go in one way, but then it says you go to pull back out. If you have a look at the way that oh sort my of god, yeah, and, yeah, I can see actually on the inside. So, dear dear listener, you're thinking, aren't you, of the carriage clock with these sort of vertical razor blades, right? But if you look closely on the inside of the carriage clock where the razor blades are, there's actually a series of jagged teeth all pointing in one direction. So Dean is absolutely right. It's a bit like the crocodile teeth you see at like pay and display car parks that mean if you drive out the in or in the out, then it punctures your tires. Um, and this has just got widespread yeah. tire puncturing written all over it. So yeah, you can you can go in, but you cannot come out. Like like an arrowhead, you get hit by the arrow, but if you try and pull it out, you're going to end up bringing yeah this thing mound is- of flesh with it. This is horrendous. <laughs> it's a horrendous device. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to bring it up, because although, like, you know, I try and keep I Call Bullshit sort of light-hearted, and it sounds kind of crazy. I know this is, is uh, obviously an issue in general, as in, like, what the, the general idea of the article is about. It's the fact that there is a realistic sort of science behind this article about a guy who had his penis shredded. Um, and the fact that that is a real thing should be enough to put anyone off i mean conceptually but like no i'm not even gonna go down that 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 road it's too too much i think i'd I'd have to have uh, a female guest or someone on to discuss issues with to go off on like tangents and ideas and things Uh, i think uh we could i'll end up in hot water again with two blokes talking about shit that we couldn't really ever understand (laughs) yeah i think um next time we get a female guest on we'll revisit the question of the terrifying carriage clock. Yeah, and see what their thoughts are. Yeah, but um, I mean, conceptually, um, I'm like, yeah, that sounds good, but it sounds like also an even more horrific event. I I feel ill just looking at it. <laughs> so so there we go. Well, that's good. Is that not what it's meant to do? Well, I suppose it is. I mean, Job it's, done. it's sometimes the idea of it. All you need is for some people to go out with it, and if you never know. Well, that's true. That's you know, true. The thought that that might happen should put everyone off. Maybe you can just get like a, a sticker like you get at the front of the house that says like, you know, I've got a ring doorbell. That you can just put on your bag or something that says I've got one of these. And you'd be like, no. Christ. Yeah, no, no that, that would be very effective, I think. Um, yeah, that it terrifies me. I'm, I'm not going to lie. So there you go. I think we'll leave it there with the new frightening technologies that exist, but they'll do the job. I wonder what the legal thing would be. 
I was thinking about that because you're looking, aren't you, at a sort of grievous bodily harm. Um, but I, but, I and then isn't it, it kind of self defense? Inf- is, yeah, and it's kind of self inflicted. Because I'm not sure if, it it pull, if, it, if it pulls on the way out, as we're saying it does, it causes the mm. issue on the way out, and the person has to have already committed the crime before doing it. It's not. It's not proactive, is it? It's it's sort of after yeah, the fact. Yeah, it's reactive, isn't it? Which yes. is better from a self-defense perspective. So the only way someone would ever have, have their knob chopped up by that, or penis for any uh, international listeners, is if they were raping already. Well, yeah, I mean, it would be if, if the act had, had begun and had reached a, a relatively advanced stage. So that's good from a self-defense point of view. But I just wonder about whether it would be seen as reasonable um, because, of course, once you've reached the stage where you're entitled to defend yourself, it's not a kind of blank check to then inflict as much harm as you want. Um, but then rape is in a very special category of offence, isn't it? Um, and it probably, I mean, I, I think it would be a a very harsh jury that would convict someone of grievous bodily harm in the context of of seriously injuring a, a rapist um but i i can see it you know that there, there'll be an argument there i think as to whether it's reasonable to you know cut somebody's dick off with six razor blades yeah well it's, or it's an american device i assume and it's probably that, that those sort of legal standpoints is probably why it still hasn't uh, come into any f- form of fruition but if they can take guns around to protect themselves, uh, and if they can in America, you can like you can shoot someone on your property who breaks into your house and things like that. Then you can surely, once it's reached that stage, not have to feel too bad in an American no. court about having your knob chopped up. No, exactly. I mean, I, I'm with you. I think this should be legal, um, but I can certainly see somebody making the argument that it's it's unreasonable harm. Yeah, interesting. That there we go. Maybe we'll have to bring this up in the future. I would like to. To have a bigger conversation on these sort of anti-rape devices, yeah, and see if there's yeah. anything else has been created. But we'll see. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm with you though. That sort of two blokes chatting about it probably isn't the best. No, approach, no. that's so. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'll leave it there for this week. Um, we've gone over a wide range of things yet again. I've been taught a lesson, and potential rapists may be taught a lesson one day. Hopefully, well, hopefully they will get taught a lesson in some way or shape or form, but I like the severity of this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, have you got anything to say before we go, Mike? Uh, yeah, just one thing. Um, because I spent the last sort of four days ill and um, therefore largely sitting on the sofa, I have been re-watching a classic uh, BBC series, Yes Minister, and it still holds up today as a brilliant, brilliant piece of political satire. And if anyone is looking for a, a really top class bit of TV to watch, um, I would strongly recommend Yes Minister. It's as relevant today as it was when it was written. Absolutely fantastic. Didn't it later on get a spin-off? Didn't he become Prime Minister? Is there that one called yes. yes Prime Minister afterwards? Yes, there is then another series, or possibly two series, I think, of um, Yes Prime Minister with the same cast. Yep. Um, but brilliant really really good okay well there you go now you've got something to watch and and absorb until our next i was about to say meeting 
Well, it'll be <laughs> our next meeting and your next listening. So thank you for joining us this week for Holding Court, and we hope you come back again next week. Goodbye, everybody. If you know of any strange court or legal cases you would like us to discuss on the show, feel free to email us at holding.court at outlook.com. Thank you.